I am thrilled and honored to introduce our keynote speaker. In the world of law, he actually needs no introduction, but I am so happy that so many of you are not from the world of law and have decided to join us today. Uh, so I will introduce him uh, for those of you who don't know him. Erwin Chemerinsky received his Bachelor of Science degree from Northwestern University and his JD from Harvard Law School. Between 1983 and 2004, Dean Chemerinsky was a professor at the University of Southern California Law School, including as the Sidney M. Ermis Professor of Public Interest Law, Legal Ethics, and Political Science. From 2004 to 2008, Dean Chemerinsky was the Alston and Byrd Professor of Law and Political Science at Duke University, after which time he went for nine years to the University of California Irvine School of Law, where he was the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond Pryke Professor of First Amendment Law. To say that he founded that school is an understatement. He really brought it into existence and rocketed it to prominence and distinction and made it really a top-notch uh, law school. Last year, he was named the 13th Dean of the Berkeley uh, Law School and the Jesse H. Choper Distinguished Professor of Law. That's his career path, <laughs> but it hardly begins to describe who Dean Chemerinsky is or what he has done. He is a man of passion, commitments, and action. He is the author of 10 books and over 200 law review articles, uh, including among his books, The Case Against the Supreme Court from 2014, and two books published in 2017 by Yale University Press, Closing the Courthouse Doors, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforced and free speech on campus with Howard Gilman. That would be two books in one year while being dean. That is a very high bar uh, that he has set. Dean Chemerinsky also writes weekly column for the Sacramento Bee, monthly columns for the ABA Journal and the Daily Journal, and frequent op-eds in newspapers across the country. He frequently argues appellate cases, including at the Supreme Court. He is one of the nation's top experts in constitutional law, federal practice, and civil rights and civil liberties. The awards and honors that Dean Chemerinsky has received go on for pages. Literally, that's not a figure, that literally go on for pages. Pages. So I'll just mention a few. In January 2017, National Jurist Magazine named Dean Chemerinsky as the most influential person in legal education in the United States for the second time, having won that award just three years before. He is an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has been named to the list of the 100 most influential lawyers in California too many times for me to recite. And he has received many, many awards from ACLUs and other civil rights and civil liberties organizations. Dean Chemerinsky's own background has shaped his passions and his commitments. He was the first member of his family to attend college. And he talked about how that experience has sensitized him to the power of social class and taught him firsthand about the difficult transition faced by today's first-generation professionals. It is why he cares so much about making law school accessible for those who can't afford it. As both a free speech and a civil rights advocate, Dean Chemerinsky's is a crucial and important voice in questions of free speech on campuses today. And now that he's at Berkeley, he's clearly uh, in the middle of many of these debates. In his view, quote, the central principle of the First Amendment and of academic freedom is that all ideas and views can be expressed. Sometimes they are ideas and views that we might consider noble, that advance equality. Sometimes they might be views that we abhor. But there is no way to empower 
our government or campus administration to restrict speech without allowing for the possibility that tomorrow it will be our speech that is restricted. Dean Chemerinsky is also committed, as committed as he is to free speech, to navigating between what some have insisted are irreconcilable values of free speech and inclusive community, or between what might be called freedom of speech and freedom from offense. And he has said, quote, I think we have to be attentive to the fact that many students want to restrict speech because of very laudable instincts. They want to protect other students from hate speech. They want to create an inclusive community for all. But the response to hate speech can't be to prohibit and punish it. It's unconstitutional. We have to find other ways to create inclusive communities. He sees creating such inclusive communities as crucial to what law schools do. And one of the most important responsibilities of a dean is to create, quote, a warm and inclusive community where all members feel, wel feel welcome and can thrive. And as you all know, I am wholly supportive of that vision of the dean. Uh, indeed, Dean Chemerinsky is committed not only as a dean, but also as a scholar and a lawyer to equality and civil rights. And the case he will discuss today is also about inclusion in a community on a much larger scale. It's about full citizenship within a national community, and it is one of the key cases that made such inclusion and equality possible, Loving versus Virginia. I will leave the substance to him, but I'll end with a quote from one of his new colleagues. She called Dean Chemerinsky, quote, a living legend a person who exemplifies the very best that the field of law has to offer. Brilliant, warm-hearted, thoughtful, open-minded, and deeply engaged in the culture of public service. I am honored and delighted to welcome Dean Chemerinsky to UVA and to hear what he has to say to start off our exploration of this seminal case and its meaning 50 years later. Thank you. Wow, thank you so much for that incredibly kind introduction. I admit as I was sitting there, I felt a bit embarrassed, but only wish my mom could be here to listen. <laughs> thank you also so much for inviting me to speak here today. I want to thank my colleague, Angela Wachowilek, and I also want to thank all of the editors for the journal for allowing me to be part of this terrific conference. I often hear from my students understandable complaints that there's such a strong persistence of racism and racial discrimination in our society. Sometimes they lament that it seems that our society has made very little progress in this regard. Although there's an enormous way for society to go, focusing on Loving versus Virginia gives us a sense of how different the world is today than in 1967. Loving was decided on June 12, 1967, now almost 51 years ago. At that time, 16 states still had laws that prohibited interracial marriages. The difference in attitudes between the 1950s and the 1960s and today with regard to interracial marriage is stunning. A survey in 1955 found that 96% of all Americans would oppose having a child marry somebody of a different race. When Loving was decided in 1967, 80% of Americans said they would oppose having a child marry someone of a different race. And it's interesting how that decade, the decade of the civil rights movement, obviously had an effect on pu public attitudes. In 1990, 63% of Americans said they would oppose having a family member marry somebody of a different race. Today, according to a number of different surveys, only 11% of Americans say they would oppose having somebody marry 
individual of a different race. 8% of African Americans surveyed and 12% of whites surveyed said that they would oppose this. In fact, now 35% of Americans say that having somebody in their family marry somebody of a different race would be a good thing. The numbers and percentages with regard to interracial marriage also show the shift in attitudes. In 1980, and here we're talking more than a decade after loving, there were 651,000 interracial marriages in the United States. By 1990, that had more than doubled to 1,348,000. By the year 2000, there were 3 million interracial marriages a year. And the most recent number I could find was for 2012, 4.8 million interracial marriages that year. It really is a dramatic increase. You can see it in percentages, if that is helpful. In 1960, only 0.4% of all marriages in the United States were interracial. In 1980, it was only 2%, but in 2015, it was 16%. But maybe the statistic that for me puts this most in context is surveys where parents are asked, or people more generally are questioned, how would you feel about having someone in your family marry one of a different political party? 40% of Americans today would not want to have someone in their family marry an individual of a different political party. That's, of course, compared to only 11% who would oppose having someone in their family marry an individual of a different race. So if this is the context for talking about Loving versus Virginia, what I want to focus on, and I'm sure a lot of the conference will discuss, is how should we appraise the Supreme Court's role? After all, the reason we're here is to talk about Loving, and it was a Supreme Court decision. What I want to suggest to you is that in ways obvious and less apparent, loving was a triumph for the United States Supreme Court, but also in ways obvious and less apparent, loving should be regarded as a failure of the United States Supreme Court. Let me address each of these perspectives in turn. Now, there are obvious ways in which loving was a triumph for the United States Supreme Court. The court wrote a powerful, unanimous, Opinion explaining why laws prohibiting interracial marriage violated equal protection. As I mentioned, there were still 16 states that had such laws. The Virginia law that the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional was adopted in 1924 as the Racial Integrity Act, but it had even longer antecedents. Virginia adopted its first law prohibiting interracial marriage in 1691 and it was not the first of the colonies to prohibit interracial marriage. Maryland had that dubious distinction, passing a law prohibiting interracial marriage in 1664. In many ways, loving was the ideal vehicle for the Supreme Court to declare laws prohibiting interracial marriage unconstitutional. Start, after all, with the title of the case. Not even a law professor in an exam could come up with a better title for a case that holds that marriage is a fundamental right. But the facts of the case also made it ideal. Richard and Mildred Loving went to Washington, D.C. to get married, even though they were Virginia residents, because of the Virginia statute prohibiting interracial marriage. In 1958, police officers barged into their home late at night, and apparently that was to see if the officers could catch them engaged in a sexual act. 
the Lovings had their marriage certificate on the wall and they could point to it. And apparently the police officer said, that's not valid in the state of Virginia. They pled guilty to the misdemeanor offense and the sentence was that they could not live together in the state of Virginia for 25 years. When ultimately they brought their challenge to the law prohibiting interracial marriage, the law was upheld by both the Virginia Trial Court and the Virginia Supreme Court. The Virginia Trial Court's explanation for its decision could not provide a better foundation for why the Supreme Court would declare it unconstitutional. Let me read you from Judge Brazil's opinion. He said, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. The Virginia Supreme Court, as I'll discuss, affirmed that decision. Now there's other ways, as I alluded to, that may be less obvious that we should regard loving as a triumph and ways in which it really contributed to constitutional law. One of these is the court's rejection of formal equality as a way of looking at the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Virginia Supreme Court said that the Virginia law was constitutional because it treated whites and blacks the same. Whites could not marry blacks, blacks could not marry whites, and that therefore could not be said to be a denial of equal protection. Indeed, this was the state of Virginia's primary argument to the United States Supreme Court in Loving versus Virginia. And this argument also had long antecedents that the Supreme Court had accepted. Pace versus Alabama was a decision from 1883. It involved an interracial couple in Alabama. They were not married, of course. Alabama had a law that prohibited interracial marriage. But Alabama also had a law that prohibited unmarried people from engaging in sexual activity and prohibited interracial sexual activity. They were convicted under that law. They were sentenced to two years in prison and the matter came to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not consider the aspect of the Alabama law that prohibited interracial marriage but it did consider part of the statute that prohibited interracial sexual activity. And the Supreme Court upheld it saying that not violate equal protection because it applied equally to whites and blacks, prohibiting whites from engaging in sex with blacks, blacks from engaging in sex with whites. This was a decision explicitly cited by the Virginia Supreme Court in his Loving versus Virginia ruling. It's hard to overstate the sway of formal equality in Supreme Court equal protection jurisprudence for decades. If you go back and read Plessy versus Ferguson, it was very much based on this notion of formal equality, that separate but equal does not violate the Constitution. And the court obviously paid no attention to all of the inequalities that made it anything but separate but equal, and also the entire basis for the law. If you read the opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court says to the extent that African Americans see the law as denigrating to them, it's because they put that construction on the statute, is all about formal equality. Formal equality is what the court followed in the decades between Plessy and Brown and continually upholding the Jim Crow laws that segregated literally every aspect of Southern life in life in so many border states as well. 
Brown versus Board of Education that we regard as the landmark with regard to racial equality does not denounce this reliance on formal equality. Brown versus Board of Education instead is written about how segregation in education inherently creates inequality. It doesn't discuss whether formal equality should be rejected as a model. In the years after Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court struck down other laws segregating varying aspects of life, but it did so in procuring opinions. It did so without giving explanation. That made Loving versus Virginia particularly important in its rejection of formal equality as a way of approaching the Equal Protection Clause. That doesn't mean that formal equality has vanished from constitutional jurisprudence. If you look at the sway of the claim of a colorblind constitution among conservative justices, you see the reassertion of a form of formal equality. But I think Loving tells us that's not what equal protection is about. Closely related is a second way in which I'd regard this case as a triumph, and that's the court for the first time takes the view that equal protection is about an anti-subordination principle. The court for the first time says that laws that are based on the assumption of a superiority of one race and an inferiority of another race are unconstitutional. This, of course, is what has to replace formal equality as a model. It is, of course, what equal protection must be understood to be about. It's why laws that mandated segregation inherently unconstitutional because they were based on an assumption of superiority of one race and inferiority of another. And that's very much what the Racial Integrity Act of 1924 and all laws that prohibited interracial marriage were about. And again, if you look at Supreme Court opinions prior to Loving, you don't see them expressing this view. The court in Brown versus Board of Education could have written an opinion explaining why segregation is inherently at odds with the Constitution because it is based on an assumption of superiority and inferiority of different races. But that's not what Chief Justice Earl Warren chose to do in his opinion. Instead, he focused narrowly on education and why having segregation and education inherently means unequal schools. We know that he did this to get unanimity that if he wrote an opinion strongly condemning segregation is inconsistent with equal protection, he likely would have not gotten all nine justices to agree. In fact, if you remember, Brown versus Board of Education had originally been argued in October term 1952. The court did not come to a decision that year. William Douglas, in his autobiography, The Court Year, said, had the court voted in the spring of 1953, it would have been five to four to uphold separate but equal. In the summer of 1953, Chief Justice Fred Vinson died. Dwight Eisenhower made Earl Warren, then the governor of California, a recess appointment. And Warren was committed that it had to be a unanimous opinion from the court. That then led to a narrow opinion about separate but equal in education not a broad opinion, condemning segregation or expressing anti-subordination is the key to understanding equal protection, especially with regard to the races. Not long ago, former Justice John Paul Stevens in his book said the court might have made a mistake by choosing 
unanimity over a stronger statement condemning segregation, but that's how it came to be written. And as I said, as you know, in the cases following Brown that found segregation unconstitutional, there was no judicial opinion written. So the court between Brown in 1954 and Loving in 1967 never had the occasion to say that a law like those mandating segregation, like the Racial Integrity Act in 1924, were inherently inconsistent with equal protection. There's a final way in which I think that Loving versus Virginia is a triumph for constitutional law, and that's in its recognition of marriage as a fundamental right. I would say, until the movement for marriage equality for gays and lesbians, this aspect of Loving versus Virginia got much less attention than the equal protection component. But beginning with the decision of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in 2003, culminating a mere 12 years later in Oberfell versus Hodges on June 26, 2015, Loving versus Virginia was the key to the Supreme Court and before that the lower court decisions finding a right to marriage equality for gays and lesbians. In this regard, we have to remember that the court finding a fundamental right not enumerated, especially one with regard to autonomy, was something that rarely occurred before Loving versus Virginia. There were a couple of cases in the 1920s, Meyer versus Nebraska and Pierce versus Society of Sisters, that said that there's a fundamental right of parents to control the upbringing of their children under the liberty of the Due Process Clause. But those cases were seen to be part of the Lochner-era jurisprudence, and they always were somewhat doubt because they were time when the Supreme Court was using liberty to protect things like freedom of contract much more than autonomy. In 1942, in Skinner v. Oklahoma, the Supreme Court, in an equal protection case, proclaimed that the right to procreate was a fundamental right. It was an Oklahoma statute that imposed involuntary sterilization on those three times convicted of a crime of moral turpitude. But, as we focus on, maybe even cheer for Skinner, we have to remember that just 15 years earlier, in 1927, in Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court upheld a Virginia statute adopted as part of the eugenics movement that led to involuntary sterilization, perhaps as many as 50,000 individuals. And to this day, Buck versus Bell has never been overruled. There was Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965 that held that there's a right to purchase and use contraceptives. But with regard to the protection of autonomy under the Constitution, these rulings which I can count on less than the fingers of one hand, are really all that the Supreme Court had said. So for the Supreme Court to proclaim and do so emphatically that the right to marry is a fundamental right is quite notable. And it paved the way for other rights to regard it as a fundamental right. Subsequently, such as in Stanley versus Illinois in 1973, the court said that parents have a fundamental right to the custody of their children in Moore versus City of East Cleveland, the court said that there's a right to keep the family together. The court, in cases like Troxel versus Granville in 2000, recognized a right of parents to control the upbringing of their children. Roe versus Wade, not long if you think about it, after Loving versus Virginia in 1973, the court was held that there's a right of women to choose whether to terminate their pregnancy. 
Subsequently, the court held that there's a right of competent adults to choose whether to refuse medical treatment. The court held in Lawrence versus Texas in 2003 that there's a right to engage in private, consensual, same-sex sexual activity. If you put all of these together, you see how difficult it would be for the Supreme Court to ever say that non-textual rights are impermissible under the Constitution. I worry that we will have an ever more conservative Supreme Court in the years ahead, one that wants to embrace an originalist form of constitutional law. And yet those justices would be confronted with the reality that because of loving in the other cases, it would really be a radical change in constitutional law to overrule the rights that have just enumerated, the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody of one's children, the right to keep the family together, the right to control the upbringing of the, one's children, the right to purchase and use contraceptives, the right to abortion, the right to refuse medical treatment, the right to engage in private consensual same-sex sexual activity. Loving is integral with regard to these decisions. And loving obviously was integral in paving the way to a right to marriage equality for gays and lesbians. There's the obvious here. The litigants were able to use the language of loving and its proclamation of a fundamental right to marry. But there's also a way in which I think loving is crucial in a more subtle manner. The primary argument that states could make for why they could prohibit same-sex marriage was the long tradition of such laws. If you think about it, none of the other arguments against same-sex marriage made much sense. The litigants tried to argue to the United States Supreme Court that it was about biology. In fact, if you read the briefs, you'll see they say that only a man and a woman can have a child without assistance and that therefore that justifies prohibiting same-sex marriage. The therefore in that sentence has no basis whatsoever. Besides, of course, gay and lesbian couples would have children whether or not they could marry by adoption, surrogacy, artificial insemination. So that argument was just silly. In the end, those who wanted to defend laws that prohibited same-sex marriage had to do so on the ground of tradition. But here's why loving is so important. Loving establishes that a long tradition of discrimination cannot justify continued discrimination. However long the tradition in the United States of prohibiting same-sex marriage, there was a much longer tradition in the United States of prohibiting interracial marriage. As I said, it goes to the 17th century in Virginia, in Maryland, and in so many other places. So in all of these regards, I think we should celebrate Loving versus Virginia. We should regard it as a huge triumph for the Supreme Court and for constitutional law. And yet I also think we have to regard Loving as a failure of the United States Supreme Court. And I explain this in a single word, 1967. Loving versus Virginia doesn't get decided by the United States Supreme Court until 1967. Now I worry for some of the law students in the room, 1967 seems like ancient history, and so why am I lamenting it took to 1967? Um, I confess, admitting my age, that 1967 isn't ancient history. I was 14 years old in 1967. I started high school in 1967. I remember the St. Louis Cardinals beating the Boston Red Sox 4-3 to in the World Series in 1967. 
I remember following the Six-Day War in Israel in 1967. And here I'm very critical of the Supreme Court for waiting until 1967 to say something that should be so obvious under equal protection. Laws that prohibit interracial marriage deny equal protection. In some ways, I think the Supreme Court was following rather than leading with regard to this. In 1948, in Perez v. Sharp, the California Supreme Court declared unconstitutional the California law prohibiting interracial marriage. California had adopted that law in 1850. It also shows us that laws that prohibit interracial marriage were not just something in the South, they were common throughout the United States. From 1942 to 1967, 14 states around the country repealed their laws prohibiting interracial marriage. Most of those laws were repealed in Western states. Illinois was one of the states during the time to repeal its law. There was also some on the East Coast. Now, in saying this, I don't want to underestimate the existence of such laws in 1967. Every southern state still had a law in 1967 prohibiting interracial marriage. And yet the question is, if the California Supreme Court could do this in 1948, why did it take the Supreme Court another 19 years to do it in Loving versus Virginia? If you're not familiar with the constitutional law in this area, you, you might come to immediate suggestion and say, well, the court just didn't have the vehicle for declaring the laws unconstitutional until Loving versus Virginia. But that's not so. A case came to the court in 1956 out of Virginia, name versus name, and it gave the Supreme Court the opportunity for finding that laws prohibiting interracial marriage denied equal protection. In fact, under the procedural rules that existed at that time, the Supreme Court was obligated to take the case in name versus name. Under the 1925 statute that defined Supreme Court jurisdiction at the time, the Supreme Court was obligated to hear any case where a state court upheld the constitutionality of a state law. The Virginia courts, it upheld the constitutionality of the Virginia law. So in the technical terms of Supreme Court review, it was a case that came by appeal, a matter that the Supreme Court was obligated to take. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court dismissed name versus name in 1956 and didn't hear it. The conventional wisdom is that the Supreme Court didn't hear name versus name because it was too soon after Brown versus Board of Education. Justice Tom Clark, who was on the Supreme Court at the time, said it would just have been too great a shock for the court to find laws prohibiting interracial marriage unconstitutional right after it found segregation education to violate the 14th Amendment. I want to strongly disagree with that. I think that the Supreme Court abdicated its role and should have in 1956, in name versus name, declared the Virginia law unconstitutional. First, public reaction to a Supreme Court decision isn't a justification for the court abdicating its role. Unquestionably, there would have been opposition to the decision in the southern states that still had laws prohibiting interracial marriage, 
But that doesn't explain why the Supreme Court shouldn't declare those laws unconstitutional. The very structure of the Constitution that gives to Supreme Court Justice life tenure tells us that they're supposed to be deciding cases based on the Constitution, not based on what's going to please the voters. Second, I don't believe that had the Supreme Court declared the Virginia law unconstitutional in 1956, it would have increased the massive resistance that was already occurring throughout the South. Throughout the South, in response to Brown versus Board of Education, from that time, more than a decade, there was massive resistance. Southern states, including Virginia, did everything they could to try to block the implementation of desegregation orders. Assume the Supreme Court had declared the Virginia law against interracial marriage unconstitutional. What would have that meant in terms of greater resistance or greater opposition to the United States Supreme Court? Hard to think it would have been much greater than it was anyway. But finally, I think that had the Supreme Court in name versus name declared the Virginia law unconstitutional, it could have had an enormous positive benefit with regard to civil rights. I think the court would have signaled that Brown versus Board of Education was not just about equality in education. The court would have had the occasion in 1956, Claire, that formal equality isn't the way of understanding equal protection, that we have to understand the Equal Protection Clause in terms of anti-subordination, and that laws like those mandating segregation like those prohibiting interracial marriage, based on an assumption of superiority of one race and inferiority of another, cannot stand under equal protection. And that message, clearly explained by the Supreme Court, could have had a positive effect with regard to civil rights. Would it have stopped the massive resistance? No, I don't think it would have made it worse, but it might have had a benefit in terms of explaining to the public, persuading the public of the proper view of equal protection. Ultimately, I think the question as we assess Loving versus Virginia is what's it realistic to expect from the United States Supreme Court? Throughout American history, the United States Supreme Court has been a failure when it comes to matters of race. As everyone in this room knows, from 1787 when the Constitution was written until 1865 when the 13th Amendment was adopted, not once did the court chip away at the institution of slavery. In cases like Prigg versus Pennsylvania and Dred Scott versus Sanford, the court strongly came down on the side of the rights of slave owners. As everyone in this room knows, from 1896 to 1954, the Supreme Court not only articulated the doctrine of separate but equal, but enforced it with a vengeance. Now, I always worry that my students regard all of this as ancient history. But we see the same from the current court. After all, it was on June 25th, 2013, in Shelby County versus Holder, that the Supreme Court, for the first time since the 19th century, declared unconstitutional a federal civil rights statute, and declaring unconstitutional a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Even the triumph with regard to the Supreme Court and civil rights in recent years, it's allowing colleges and universities to engage in affirmative action, has to be seen as only a partial victory because the Supreme Court has refused to allow college and universities to engage in affirmative action as a way of remedying the long history and legacy of discrimination, instead requiring them to 
document that is necessary to achieve diversity. I value diversity, but isn't that the Supreme Court really saying the reason we allow affirmative action is it benefits white students to have black and brown students in the classroom? So is that really a full triumph with regard to civil rights? So you get to the question that I posed for you. What should we expect of the Supreme Court? Maybe in Dred Scott versus Sanford, we couldn't have accept, expected better because a majority of the Supreme Court have been slaveholders. And is it realistic that they could triumph their own experience and their culture? But I think in name versus name in 1956, we could have expected better from the Supreme Court. I think long before 1967, in Loving versus Virginia, we should have expected better from the Supreme Court in finding that such laws are unconstitutional. So through this wonderful symposium focusing on Loving versus Virginia, I guess what I would leave you with is this should have been and really was an easy case for the Supreme Court in constitutional law. And I think this is best expressed by a statement made by Richard Loving to his lawyer. Richard Mildred Loving did not attend the oral arguments in the Supreme Court in Loving versus Virginia. But quite famously, he said to his lawyer, Mr. Cohn, tell the court that I love my wife and it's just not fear that I cannot live with her in Virginia. Isn't that obviously so? And isn't that what this is all about? Thank you.